You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today is no exception. We're diving into the past, not looking at history per se, but looking at creatures from history. What do they have to say, particularly about apologetics? My guest today is someone who told me about his podcast, wanted to come on, mind to talk about it. His name is uh, Troy Frazier. He runs the Revive Thoughts podcast. He graduated from Bible College in 2015. Since then, he's worked with at-risk youth, lived and taught in China for two years, and taught at a school in the heart of Miami. He's now serving at Northside Christian Church. He's also a co-host on Revive Thoughts podcast, created by him and Joe Burdess, to bring the great sermons of history back to life. They have been able to bring unique voices to over 15 sermons so far by people like John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So, Troy, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, the story of how we got started is uh, we had a podcast a very long time ago. It was just a general talk show podcast, and it didn't do too well. But at the time, I, I bought this book. And it was, I thought when I went to the bookstore that it was a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like a biography. And you know, when you're at the bookstore, sometimes you're grabbing a bunch of books, you're having a great time. You don't really pay attention. At least I didn't pay attention this day to what I was grabbing. When I got home, I realized this is not a Dietrich Bonhoeffer biography, but this is a collected works and sermons of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I was so disappointed, to be honest with you. I, I really wanted to read this thick biography and learn more about who he was as a person. And when I saw all these collected works, I was like, what am I going to do with these? But eventually I started to read them. I started to go through them. And I was really impacted, especially by the sermons. And each sermon kind of came with a little, uh, just a tiny snippet of the history of what had happened before the sermon. Mm -hmm. And there was one specifically that just got to me. It was called Overcoming Fear. We actually did this episode on our show. And the, you know, the week leading up to this sermon, he, uh, Nazis had marched through the streets of Berlin with torches, and they had demanded on the streets, make Adolf Hitler the new chancellor of Germany. And this was like two, two weeks to two months out before he would become the Adolf Hitler that we all knew it takes over Germany. And they get into this big brawl with these communists. They're in this big fisticuff battle. You know, thousands of people are injured. It's this crazy thing. And then on that Sunday, this happens like Friday night, on Sunday, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets up in the pulpit and goes, don't be afraid. And I just was so impacted by that. I thought, this is crazy. People need to listen to this. this these sermons need to come back to life. And that's kind of what started uh, the journey of thinking, we need to start bringing these sermons back to life so people can listen to them again. Mm-hmm. Now, Troy, the thing is, if it's kind of thing is that, uh, you know, when we hear of preachers today, sometimes we sadly think of people like Joel Osteen yep. or 
John Hagee of his Blood Moons fiasco. Yeah. And let's face it, many of us, when we think about things we want to do, very rarely does anyone say, you know, I think it'd be really good to go in and uh, hear a sermon at church. That sounds like such a great time to have. <laughs> yeah. That includes I, I, me. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I do. And I, I will say, you know, one of the most popular podcast channels on the entire iTunes is Joel Osteen, mm. uh, Joyce Mayer. You know, if you look at the Christian podcasting charts, the Joel Osteen, you know, the, these uh, Crayflow Dollar, these guys are some of the biggest channels on all of iTunes in the entire podcasting world. Mm -hmm. So there are people who do, you know, we do take time to listen to these sermons. I know I have some on my phone. There are many famous mm -hmm. preachers uh, today, John uh, MacArthur, John Piper, Francis Chan. Mm -hmm. These guys are very big and have big followings because of their sermons. Mm -hmm. But there are other people too who, you know, they don't want to listen to a sermon. They barely feel good about making it to church. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like They're like, I don't even want to go to church on a Sunday, let alone in my free time listen to sermons. What, mm -hmm. I would say to you, what I would say to this whole group of people is saying, I understand where you're coming from, but if you want to grow, clo grow closer to God and have a movement towards Christ that will really impact you, I highly recommend looking at this great truth preached from several hundred years ago. There is something, there's wisdom and nuggets of wisdom by these people that you can't get today because they lived different lives than we did. And mm -hmm. also, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, very common in today's world, there'll be a scandal where, you know, a, a preacher or a pastor falls to something. You know, he's, he's leaving the church or whatever. That happens. Really? Pretty, yeah, it happens pretty <laughs> commonly, am I right? Uh -huh. And uh, you know what's nice about these preachers is we don't have to worry about their scandals because we already know everything about them. You know, we don't have to worry about... Uh, Charles Spurgeon being kicked out of his church because he's been dead for a hundred years, so we're mm. good on this. Mm-hmm. So, I think part of it might also be because when we talk about preachers today and sermons today, mm -hmm. I think really about 95%, that's being super conservative, of the, the uh, sermons I've heard today are pretty much fluff, yep. as I call them. I mean, they, they don't have any real impact mm -hmm. to me. It, it's all more about, like, here's how you're supposed to be a good Christian person, and nothing about diving deep into Scripture mm -hmm. and really studying it. It, it, it. Our sermons today, heck, even a lot of contemporary Christian music, it's just self-help. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, you know, I don't want to rip on the good people who are doing God's work, you know, today. I, I'm, I'm obviously, you know, not as mature and experienced as many of them, but I do agree with you that I think you can see a stark contrast when you look at these sermons, listen to these sermons from the past, mm -hmm. and then you compare them to the sermons today. And there is something where it does seem like we've we've quit going as deep. You know, your show, Deeper Waters, you're all about plunging in deep. And mm -hmm. your audience, obviously, is all about that, too. If you guys really want to hear some deep sermons, you want to hear something that's going to be just different than what you're listening to today. These sermons from the past are where it is at. These guys are intelligent they're very they're very smart they they you know they they have tons of languages under their belt they read books you know sometimes we look at the past and we think oh these guys you know they don't have phones and stuff like we do they they don't have that no no, no. these guys are highly intelligent they're very passionate they're, there's a reason most of these guys are the best preachers through history and you listen to their sermons honestly they just seem to view god differently than we do and and it is to our our you know, negative that we don't see God that way. They just seem to have a real appreciation for who he is. Mm. And like you said, also with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many yeah. of them were kind of literally 
to some extent in, in on the forefront of what was going on. They were in yep. the midst of the chaos all around them. Yep. We have uh, an episode on Samuel Cooper. He was a preacher during the Revolutionary War. He's not a well-known guy, but inside his congregation was John Adams, John Quincy Adams, and John Hancock. He was mm-hmm. clo- close friends with Benjamin Franklin. Uh, George Washington actually had him edit a copy of the Treaty of Paris, kind of proofread mm-hmm. it. Uh, this guy is extremely well-connected, yet most people would never consider him a founding father, have never heard of his name. Preachers played a huge impact on history. You're going to tell me that what he was preaching on Sunday and telling John Adams and these guys wouldn't go on to affect how they ran the country? Of course it did. And yet we often completely overlook this humongous side of history that is, you know, for the past 2,000 years spread throughout all of America and European history. What were these guys telling their congregants to believe? What were they being told? That really has an impact. You know, you can't get the Revolutionary War either without the Great Awakening with George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and what they were doing. Yeah, I I think it's so fascinating that you mentioned the Treaty of Paris, because whenever I'm talking with people and they bring up something like, say, the, tre- the Treaty of Tripoli, mm-hmm. they try to show that America isn't... Oh, Nick, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. No, where'd it go? I'm here. Dang, is that my internet or his? Oh, no, we're having a good discussion. Uh, I can hear you. Nick, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Test, test, test.
As soon as I can get on the internet again, well, looks like it could be up. Okay. Hey again. Yeah, this will all be edited out. So. Okay, no problem. Do I need to do any recording on my end, or you, you got it all coming through? No problem. I've still got it all coming through, but if you can do, okay. if you want to do it on your end just to be safe as a backup, that'd be fine too. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Just you know, we got some internet and storm stuff. We'd mm -hmm. hate to lose it. We were just getting into it too. I was enjoying it. Okay, well let's get right back into it here. Now, I think it's so fascinating that you mention the. Uh, the Treaty of Paris, because I know sometimes when I get into internet debates with atheists about the Treaty of Tripoli and how that's such a disputed term and how it has this part that like, America isn't a Christian nation mm -hmm. or something of that sort or the government's not Christian. I don't remember worrying exactly. I always point them to the Treaty of Paris, mm -hmm. which is undisputed in anything it says and how it starts about, out with, I believe, in the name of the Holy Trinity. Yeah, it's a, 
it's very obvious that again the Treaty of Paris edited by I mean one of the editors was a pastor and you know there were other people there were pastors who helped sign the Declaration of Independence if you look at what pastors were preaching in the 1750s 60s and 1740s mm-hmm. you know they said it is just as evil as doing the actions of the men to allow evil tyrannical you know governments to do things and don't check them and so is it any surprising that that's what sermons were going around the country and being preached if 20 years from then they go we need a revolution and then george whitfield and benjamin franklin had a long-standing friendship a very close friendship uh benjamin franklin if if it's to be believed there's a letter out there where benjamin franklin wrote to george whitfield and he said we should start a new state in the area of Ohio, and we should make it a completely Christian, you know, state, a completely Christian colony, and we can use it as like the headquarters to evangelize the Native Americans. Mm. Now, I know that Benjamin Franklin is well known for being a deist. I don't know how you explain this letter by Benjamin Franklin because it is it is something he wrote to Whitfield, but he had this close relationship. These preachers were the spiritual mentors of these founding fathers. These preachers mm-hmm. were preaching, had an effect, and they were the men on the front lines, you know, the chaplains. They were the guys whose sons were going to war. I mean, these people were embedded, and this is just America's founding. All throughout history, preachers and sermons have played a gigantic effect. I mean, just think of how much they affect you in your life, mm-hmm. and then just imagine that by all of human history. <laughs> yeah. Um, how many sermons do you have in this time of, say, preachers saying something about the issue of slavery? Ooh. So right now we haven't finished any episodes on the issue of slavery with the the current batch that we're doing, but we do have future episodes coming out where that will be something that we're going to talk about. You know, we're trying to cover 1900 years of history or 1800 years of history, give or take. So it's a lot of take that long, (laughs) but, um, but we do actually have an episode. We do have an episode where George Whitfield is a little uh, pro-slavery, which if you didn't know much about his history, mm-hmm. that might surprise you. That, mm-hmm. that comes up in one of his sermons where he's like, yeah, it's kind of like this with a slave. And you're like, ooh, but it is history. What are we going to do? Edit it out. Mm-hmm. Now, if uh, I'm tuning in to listen to your podcast, what am I going to hear? Am I just going to hear someone doing what they think John Calvin would sound like delivering a sermon or what? <laughs> So the first thing you're going to hear is you're going to hear an uh, introduction by Joel and myself. You know, we don't just, we realized very quickly it, w- when we first came up with this idea, which was about uh, almost two years ago, that if we just read the sermon to you, you know, drolly read it from a textbook, that is not going to really hit your life. It's not going to impact you the way we think it should. You know, and there are other people doing that. And I say great work to those guys. I love that that's out there. But what we wanted to do was something a little bit different. So the first thing you're going to hear is about 10 minutes or so of an introduction of who this pastor is. You know, I didn't realize until we started this project that I didn't actually know a lot about the famous, you know, theologians and preachers of history. Like, I had seen the quotes by Charles Spurgeon. I had read some of his work. I had read some of John, you know, Martin Luther, these guys, but I didn't know who they were. Like, I didn't know what things impacted their life. I didn't know B.B. Warfield had a wife that was pretty much an invalid her entire life, and he mm. actually left the Princeton Theological Campus for 10 years. Like, I didn't understand that Hudson Taylor landed in China at the beginning of the Taiping Rebellion, which was the fourth bloodiest event in world history, and that happened right in Shanghai, right where he landed. And uh, he would have been telling people, hey, you need to come to Jesus. And they would have been like, oh, like Jesus's brother leading the Taiping Rebellion. No, the real Jesus. Not, I mean, that would have been just so difficult to do. So these these contexts give a lot. So we do that at the beginning of each sermon episode. Yeah, I, I know the story about BB Warfield quite mm-hmm. rare because I remember being at the 
the Fender Faith Conference in New Orleans. I've been invited to speak, and my wife came with me. And we are sitting at a taper with Gary Habermas, the man who introduced me to Allie and married us, mm-hmm. and Tim McGrew, a few others. <laughs> wow. And we're sitting there just chit-chatting, and someone actually brings up the story about B.B. Warfield. Yeah. And this is first I'd ever heard of it, and I had my dinner there, and I just take him a bite. And Gary just says, huh, so Nicholas, if that happened to Allie, would you do the same thing? And like I said, I just started chewing on something. Then <laughs> deer caught in the headlights immediately. <laughs> and Tim McGrewville jumped in and said he absolutely would. Oh. And I went up to him afterwards and I thanked him for what he said. And yeah. he said, said for what? So they, you know, the comment you said that I take care of Allie if something bad happens to him. He said, Nick, you adore Allie and everyone yeah. here can see it. And Aww. Something I've asked her about several times that, honey, you were there with me the whole time at the conference. Yep. I got a lot of comments on projects, didn't I? Yep. You got a lot of comments on uh, intellect. Man, I was like that. Yes. I don't remember a single one of those comments. Com- <laughs> compliments. I remember that one compliment. That's what yep. it means the most. Aw. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. It, the, for those maybe who haven't heard the story of B.B. Warfield where he... um his wife got sick basically on their honeymoon mm. and he had uh, to take care of her. I mean, they just gotten married. They went to Germany. They were on a walk. A giant mm. thunderstorm happened. It either triggered something that was maybe already psychologically there or maybe she got struck by lightning. No I one was knows told she got struck by lightning. But. It's not for certain 100% what happened, but something happened to her. She got sick and for the rest of her days, she just slowly deteriorated. The last 10 years of his life, he was in. The, he was, you know, a professor at Princeton, um, but he never left the college campus because she was too sick. He never felt like he could leave and safely leave her alone. He never left her alone for more than two hours. He was just always by her side, caring for mm-hmm. her. And it's just such an amazing example of the of a groom taking care of her bride, or you know, just living out what Jesus is going to do for the church. I think. And when we picked BB Warfield, we picked an, exa- an episode, a sermon he did called "The Example of Christ." mostly because he is a great sermon and also he is kind of an example of living like Christ I think would want us to live and so it just it all came together really well you know as much as many of us did respect Barry Graham work that he did I do think yeah. that was one great thought yes. that he had I mean, there was a story early on in his marriage his wife Ruth was sick and he said I have to go preach mm-hmm. and that's what he did yep and I mean, he did a lot of great things, but I think that was a shortcoming of his. I would agree with you. And that that is one thing, too, where when we're going through history and looking at these preachers and these sermons, there's people like that. You know, we talked about George Whitfield earlier. George Whitfield did not have a great relationship with his wife. Uh, and if I recall, that ended in divorce for him right at the end of his days. Uh, there's uh, John and Charles Wesley. One, I believe it's John Wesley was not known for having a great relationship with his wife either. Martin Luther, uh, they got, had a better relationship at the end of their days, but at the beginning, they just kind of married um, just because one was a nun and one was a priest, so they were just trying to show the Catholic priest up, the Catholic uh, church up. You know, it's sad, but it's kind of like King David. You know, you hear, you read the Bible, he's got a heart after God. These are great men. And then you look at his children and you're like, boy, that didn't. You know, these men, it's hard to look at back at these historical people, but some of them have very real faults and flaws. And I just, you know, they're just like us today. We have them too. 
Okay, you know, as fascinating as it is to talk about these kinds of issues, one subject you did bring up, because you knew there had to be some connection here to get on my show, was <laughs> about apologetics. Yes. And these people, they lived in a different time. Okay, they didn't have mm-hmm. internet atheists necessarily nope. around with them, but they yeah. had their own skeptics to deal with, didn't they? Oh, Yeah. Oh no, yeah. I mean, I, I we were we were uh, going through this series, putting it together, and you know, recording episodes. And I remember one point, I just looked at my co-host. And I was like, I cannot believe how many of these people died for the faith. Like, I cannot, I'm, I'm blown away by how many of these people were martyrs. You know, John Bradford, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his own way, he definitely knew if he went back to Germany that second time, he was a gone man. Mm-hmm. Um, there, just so many of these people were basically told, you come, you do this, and you're going to die. And they said, well, we're going to do it anyway. Or how many of these people? just loved God so much that they worked themselves to death. Hudson mm-hmm. Taylor, John Calvin, literally people were begging them. They were like, stop, stop. If you keep going, you're going to die. And they were like, then I'm going to die. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I understand that John Wesley got very angry with his doctor when he was in his 80s because his doctor said, you can't preach more than 13 sermons a week. Mm-hmm. And there was some entry in his diary, Ravi Zacharias talked about this, where he said, laziness is beginning to creep in. There's an increasing tendency to stay in bed past 4.30 in the morning. Oh my gosh, right? And uh, and and John Calvin, they literally, they said, like, we can't even hear you anymore. Like, your voice is disappearing. You have to stop preaching. Mm-hmm. And he just goes, Oh, and what? Be found idle when the Lord comes back? I don't think so. He dies at 55. Um, mm-hmm. J. Gresham Machen, you know, he was, he clearly had pneumonia. He was still going around preaching. Mm-hmm. And people were like, hey, why don't you just take a break? You can finish this preaching tour, you know. Uh, he was like, no, I'm going to keep going. He gets on the train, and that's the last, you know, he, he that's the end of him. But he knew it pretty much going in, and he still didn't stop. Mm-hmm. So, what were the issues they were dealing with for skeptics of a day, though? Sure. Uh, so there are, I mean, it, honestly, that's one of the craziest things about this series. You know, we think we live in a new day where someone says, you know, I don't, I don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin. Or, you know, I think this is just mythology that you guys are putting together. Or well, how do you know? I, I do need to jump in, but I, I want to make sure everyone does know, but I do happen to affirm a virgin birth. As do I. Yeah, I heard you. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, people say that today. They, they, they say those things, and they say them like they're brand new. They think they're the first people to have ever considered, what if the Bible isn't true? You know, they think it's such an mm-hmm. in, ingenious thought. And it's like, yeah, this is nothing new under the sun. Guess what? Most of the arguments people use today come from the age of reason, Thomas Paine. But guess what? Thomas Paine got most of his arguments from people before him. These people are just getting the same arguments all the time. And so these sermons are dealing with the same exact questions by skeptics that we were dealing with. You know, one of our most recent episodes is called Unbelief. It's by John Charles Ryle, you know, J.C. Ryle. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how people question whether you can really believe in divinity or God, or 90% of the time skeptics really have their own hidden sins that are kind of keeping them from wanting to come to the floor and all this different stuff. And it's so funny, he's saying this in the 1850s, but if you didn't know it was preached by J.C. Ryle, you would think it's the exact same sermon. That's, would just You could preach it today and no one would know that that wasn't just saying it to our exact same audience. Mm-hmm. You know, they're dealing with skeptics who are questioning God. They're questioning the church. They're saying that's a place filled with hypocrites. Jonathan Swift in his sermon and in a book that he wrote um, satirizing that, he basically said, if 
you know, if people in the church would just live like they actually believed in Christ, we wouldn't have so many people not believing in Jesus today. That's the same, you know, it, it, we have the same problems. There, I, I said it earlier, there's nothing new here. Um, the skeptics are dealing with the same stuff where they just, they, they call the church hypocrites. They, they say, oh, we can't believe in that book. It's too old. We've, we found new ways to do things. We've progressed to a point where we don't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. Hi, this is Jay Warner Wallace. If you're a fan of clear thinking and of being able to make the case for what you believe as a Christian, to be able to make the case for truth, well, this is a great place to learn how to do that. This is Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Nick has a number of great guests on his show, and I've been just honored to be one of those guests. So if you want to carve some time to be able to become a better Christian case maker, this is the way to do it, right here at Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Here's a great quote that I always like to use with this company. Kind of you know what you think of this. Usually even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of this world. About the motion and orbit of the stars, and even their size and relative positions. About mm-hmm. the predictable eclipses of the sun and moon, the cycles of the stars and the seasons. About the kinds of animals, shrubs stones and so forth and this knowledge he holds to as being certain from reason and experience yes. now it's a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel to hear a christian presumably giving the meaning of holy scripture talking nonsense on these topics and we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which yep. people show up vast ignorance in a christian and laugh at the scorn for shame is not so much that an ignorant individual is divided but people outside the house of their faith think that our sacred writers held such opinions and mm-hmm. to a great loss of those for whom whose salvation we toil, the writers of our scripture are criticized and rejected as unlearned men. If they find a Christian mistaken in a fear which they themselves know where and hear maintain his foolish opinions about books, how are they going to believe those books and mouths concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven? And they think their pages are full of falsehoods and on facts which they themselves have learnt from experience and the light of reason. Reckless and incompetent expounders of holy scripture being untold trouble and sorrow on their wives or brethren when they are caught in one of their mischievous, false opinions and are taken to task by those who are not bound by the authority of our sacred books. For then, to defend their utterly foolish and obviously untrue statements, they are tried to call upon holy scripture for proof and even recite from memory many passages which they think support their position, although they understand neither what they say nor the things about which they make assertion. Now, if I was just reading that to you today and you didn't know any better, for all I know, you might not know where it comes from. Yeah, might, I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> okay, you want you want to take a guess who said it and or even when it was said? Uh, I I genuinely have no idea who said it. I'll say was it said during? Um, let's try the 1600s. Why the 1600s? I'm just taking a shot in the dark. I just <laughs> I really don't know. It could be literally any time. Well, you know, you I think most people are looking think that it comes from say. I don't know, the creation-evolution debate of the yeah, day or something about young of creationism or it mm-hmm. might be a theistic evolutionist saying it about his side. But when you said 1600, you missed it by only, oh, 1200 years. St. <laughs> Augustine said that in his book, The Literal Meaning of Genesis. Yep. I mean, that's about 400 or yep. so. And yet, the very topic there, it sounds just like it could have been said today. Yes. And that's that's what we find with these sermons and we find when they are, because a lot of their sermons are spent dealing with like, hey, here's what the doubters, here's what the critics, here's what people are saying in their day. We find that like it is 
honestly, it's a testament to Christianity. And that's one of the things I think I originally said when I said, hey, you're, you're, there's an apologetics here where history is validating our faith and the fact that our faith hasn't changed. Like we're dealing with the same critics and we're dealing with the same skepticisms and mostly the same arguments that these people have been dealing with for 2000 years. I would say the biggest change actually is just that overall people are less educated. And so all you have to do is know a little bit more history, a little bit more literature than them these days. And honestly, that puts Mm -hmm. 95% of critics out of business because if you've just read five books on any of these subjects you've listened to a few of these old sermons you just have a little bit of knowledge and they don't know what to do with it because hardly anyone has done that these days yeah i when i, I encounter skeptics today sometimes one of the things i'll ask them is when was the last time you read a book on this topic that disagreed yeah. with you and yeah. i i know so many skeptics online who i swear they would rather commit ritual suicide <laughs> before reading something that would disagree with them mm-hmm no, it's the truth. They, they, the, the idea of reading, going back to the primary sources. And I read things that disagree with me, too. I read yeah. The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. That's, and when I read it, the whole time I went, oh, my gosh, that's the same argument we have today. Like, we're mm-hmm. still doing this? Like, this yeah. is almost identical word for word for what people are saying now. Mm-hmm. I read, um, you know, Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. If you just go back to these primary sources, you know, I feel like today we spend so much time going, I want to read a commentary, read about the life of Martin Luther, read about this person. It's like, no, just mm-hmm. pick up one of their old books and read it for yourself. They they read pretty easy and you learn so much more by just reading what they had to say or in the case of these sermons, hearing what they had to say. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis might have said it best. Read Plato, not books about Plato. There it is. I mean, and it, that's re- exactly it. Of course, there's nothing wrong with going back later on and reading books about Plato or even about Martin Luther or anyone else. And something you might be interested in, we had Ken Sampras on our show recently and something he said that uh, Jesus Christ is the most written about figure in human mm-hmm. history ever. But yes. someone that could come in a close second place could very well be Martin Luther. I think there's some truth in that. And that's a, and, you know, and probably the best example, right? You know, we all know, especially as Christians, we would say, oh, don't read um, uh, just about Jesus. Pick up the Bible and read his word and yeah. read the Sermon on the Mount, right? Mm-hmm. But then when we look at Martin Luther, we go, read a commentary of his. It's like, no, that's the same principle, though. We should be reading the book that Martin Luther wrote. You should be getting in there and learning these people and their words. It's good to know the biography. You know, again, at the beginning of each episode, we give that. But you need to know their actual words. Okay, so what are some of the uh, apologetics insights you've got from doing this work? Sure. Um, one thing, and this this is a little depressing. I'm going to start out with this one, but move in a more positive direction. But one thing I learned is that, I don't know how to say it other than, uh, I think George Whitfield put it pretty well, where he's like, there are some people you just aren't going to change their minds or hearts. Mm -hmm. There are things in their life that you can sit there and put the most, and I feel like this is inherently true. Uh, This is why I'm starting with this one. There are things you can put the most logical defense. You can put together the greatest work. You can give them apologetics books, send them videos, send them just flawless stuff. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really matter because they are not, nothing's going to change their heart and their mind. They have sin. They have, they don't care, they're lazy, nothing, they're, they're just looking yeah. for a fight. They don't want to hear. And so some people, it's, I think it's important to remember, some people are just not going to be apologetically swayed. Yep. But moving forward, moving past that group, uh, one thing as a whole, there's a historical, I don't know how to say, and I, I wish I was a little more intelligent, I can say this a little bit better, but... Uh, there's actually, a, before you get that one, let's talk about that first group. Some, okay, go, sure. Because um, something I was thinking, there was a story... 
that Don Johnson talks about in his book, How to Talk to a Skeptic, about yeah. a Christian teacher who had someone who was being skeptical of a, who was a Christian but starting to be skeptical of Christianity. And he kept being badgered by this individual of question after question after question. And finally, this, this teacher just turned to this guy and said, How long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? Ooh. And the guy just turned pale immediately. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what the issue was. Yeah. And I mean, this isn't to say, of course, that all atheists are no. back this because we're hard sinners and such, but some, I'm quite yes. sure, are. That's exactly it. You know, and, and, that, and that, I don't want to get into that place where, like, okay, if you're an atheist, it's just because you don't, you know, you're sinning, yeah. you don't want, no, it, I, that's not where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. There are some people who just live to be divisive, who live to mm-hmm. fight, and they're they're either fighting against just the idea of changing who they are because they know if God was real, it would impact the way they live their life. And there are other people who just genuinely enjoy fighting. And this mm-hmm. is just something they get a kick out of. They like to mock. They like to scorn. They tear down tradition. They tear down values. It, you know, they're tearing down the Bible right now, but later on they're going to tear down marriage. And later on over there they're going to tear down their home country. You know, it doesn't really matter what they put in front of them. They're just going to tear down whatever comes their way. So to, I, uh, I, I, to quote the Batman movie, some people <laughs> just like to watch the world burn. Exactly. And I think a lot of times we as, uh, you know, Christians and people who love God, we, we don't see how people can't see it. We spend a lot of time going, no, if I just put forward enough evidence, this group is going to change. And it's like, look, the only group that can, the only one who's going to change that group is God. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility. We, mm-hmm. we have a responsibility to answer whatever comes to us. We should try our best to give them the best response, but we don't you know, it almost takes the personal out of it. Like you don't need to get worked up with this group isn't changed because you know what? They're not, they're not going to change. It's not a logic thing with them. It's never been a logic thing with them. That's why so quickly they'll pick whatever the most popular phrase is in atheism this minute. And with, you know, usually you can brush that argument aside with just a slight amount of talk and discussion. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, then they just jump to the next one. They're not really there to defend a point. They're there to attack. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, I often say, that one of the reasons that we have to keep doing this, though, in a public age is when I'm doing this kind of debate with someone, I don't have any delusions about reaching the person I'm in dialogue with. None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But there's an audience right there. Yes. That's the person I'm most interested in reaching. The person yep. in the audience who could be paying attention. Maybe it's a skeptic who's watching, or maybe it's a Christian who's in doubt and needs to see a strong show of matters. Yes. And I also say at the same time, I'm also not afraid to offend someone mm-hmm. who's being like this. I, I, I have a strict policy. If someone's being an idiot, you tell them they're being an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, they sometimes need to just be called to the floor. Maybe sometimes the civility mm-hmm. needs to come off and just be like, look, you know what you're doing. Stop it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So, yeah, and I completely agree. I, you know, when I was living in China, I worked among, you know, people from all over the world, a lot of Europeans who, you know, maybe didn't know a whole lot about God. And uh, we would have nice long discussions about this. We'd have discussions about that. And God often came up because they knew exactly where I stood. And one of the things I would just kind of, you know, tell them, I would have these debates. And sometimes I would know the person I'm debating is not going to change their mind. Like they're pretty set in their ways on this one. And then I'd look over, though, and I'm like, but there's like a whole room of people here listening. I don't know what everyone else in the room is feeling, so I've got to have a good defense. At the same time, though, I'm pretty sure this guy is not going to have his mind changed. 
And yet, even some of those guys, by the time I was done that year, some of them were coming up to me and going, you know, I, I, I didn't know as much. I thought I knew a lot more about Christianity than I realized. Now, after talking with you, I've realized like there's definitely huge gaps in what I thought that meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had some skeptics that after I've given him a strong show and blown him out of the water, mm-hmm. as it were, they've come back and said, you know what? You were right to do that. I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> That's someone who I know is open, and many of them, yeah. we have good relationships today. I come with my yes. friends. Yeah, exactly. I, I would hang out with any of those guys from China again. And sometimes, too, you may be having a debate right then. I When I was very young, I was like, you know, uh, 15 online. I was, you know, sometimes in forums arguing with people and stuff like that, like, mm-hmm. you know, many people do. Yep. And and I, and I was very immature. I was very, I would not recommend anything from that era, right? Mm-hmm. But... I got a message years and years later from a person from that time, and they were like, hey, you know, like, uh, do you remember these debates and stuff we were doing? I was kind of like, yeah, I'm embarrassed by them now. And they're like, well, you, you know, you changed my life. Like, I didn't ever let you know at the time that you were winning, but, like, now I'm here to tell you, like, you, you like, I took what you said to heart, and my life is different now. And I was like, wow, like, from what, I had no idea that anything I had done, that I, I was embarrassed by all that. But you never know. You know, no matter how much they're fighting back with you, because this person would fight back hard, you never know, like, uh, 10 years from now, they, that stuff might be sinking in more than you realize. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I don't, I make it a point to not fall for any guilting techniques mm-hmm. or give. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if someone really wants to believe there's resources out there, and I can point them yes. in that direction, but at the same time I say, like, if you don't want to believe, you don't want to believe, that's going to be your choice, but don't count on me losing sleep at night because of you, okay? Exactly. Yeah, no, it, that, I completely agree. My job is to tell you the truth, and I'm going to put it in God's hands after that. I'm going to do everything I can to speak the truth in love and to do it well and to show that I have taken the time to learn what I believe and to you know answer questions. And if I don't know something, be honest and just say, you know, you got me on that one. I'm going to have to do some more research. That occasionally happens. You, you realize you're wrong. You got to be humble and take that when it happens. But I, I am not going to, you know, I'm not going to go to bed at night and go, well, I won that argument, but he didn't come to Jesus. You know, what's wrong with it? No, it, you know, it's, there's with the realm of God, you give them the logic, but there's so much more to that. I mean, that's honestly how I came to Christ was through the logical defenses of it. Like I came when I was in my, um, my teenage years, I kept hearing the logic and it just made sense. Mentally, I affirmed the ideas of God and Jesus. And it took years before it kind of reached my heart and became something that changed my life truly. But that logical defense, if people hadn't put that in life, if I hadn't read a bunch of books and just kept seeing it, it would I don't think it would have ever made it to my heart. So what we do, you know, apologetics is extremely important, but it may take a long time for that mental affirmation or that mental change to ever reach the heart. Mm-hmm. I agree entirely with that. So let's get back to I think you had another point on the issues yeah. that, that they have. What was that next point? So, and I think you, you, you may know the, the name of this argument a little bit better than I do, but I'm sure you've heard the argument where like, hey, uh, if Jesus Christ's account of um, you know, what he did and the, the Bible wasn't true, why did these 12 apostles go on to you know, pretty much all be martyred in the name of the faith, right? I, I'm sure you're aware of that argument. We, I actually interviewed Sean McDowell yeah. on here who did his PhD dissertation. <laughs> on that very topic, uh, I, I will give you a caution here. Something he says is, we don't have the best resources sure. for all of the apostles. So we can't say all 12 of them yes. die that way. But there are some we can say there is immediate evidence that yes, this is what happened with them. 
Mm-hmm. So, and I've heard that argument for a long time too, and I think it's fantastically true. You know, I've used that argument. It's just mm-hmm. you, you have to deal with it. Like you said, we don't know for sure all twelve, but it is a thing. Here's a new one, or not? Maybe it's not a new one. Well, let me careful. But here's here's where these sermons kind of come into play. It wasn't just the apostles mm-hmm. that went on to die for what changed in their life. Most of the preachers that I've talked about, we mentioned earlier in the show, they were martyred, they suffered, they gave up so much for God. These people, Hudson Taylor lost four children. He married, she died. He married again, she died. He lived in China. It's not easy to live there even today, but it was tougher back then. He gave up all of that, and yet his faith, if you read his works and listen to his sermons, he loved Jesus so much. He doesn't even like hardly count any of that as loss. In fact, he's calling people every day. You got to come. You got to come to China. You got to help me with this. We got to bring more people to Christ. Mm-hmm. George Mueller, this guy, he ran an orphanage that would eventually, I mean, he just came to England, no money, praise to God to provide for him. 10,000 orphans later, you know, at the end of his life, this guy lived a life of incredible faith. And yet he lost every single one of his kids and outlived both of his wives. You know, Mary died again, Mary died again. He outlived all of them. At the end of his days, he was completely alone. And yet he gave a sermon called Real Faith where he's like, I, you know, I love God so much. This faith matters. And what I'm saying is these people did not start their life in any way headed towards religion. George Mueller, he started his life. He was literally like a thug. He lived to steal. His mom was dying and he was gambling. He didn't go see her die. He wasn't there at her deathbed when they called him. That guy, it is hard to believe what else could have changed him so radically that he would go and watch his children die, not change, stick to the faith, and lead a life that would, ch- that would change the fortunes of 10,000 orphans and who knows how many countless people pass that without God. The same with Hudson Taylor. This guy was well on his way to becoming a banker, a, you know, a businessman. He has an encounter with gospel tract and God. And the next thing you know, he is just on the mission field, giving it everything he has for them. And you can find his great, great grandson today, Hudson Taylor V, is still a part of that same mission. Um, John Calvin, you know, he was doing just fine in life, going to become a priest in the Catholic Church, veers off, almost dies. They try to kill him multiple times. He goes over to Geneva, and he just gives it all. He is, he is scorned and attacked. These guys face unbelievable amounts of criticism, and they don't, they don't ever quit. They don't give it up. And yeah, you can go through history and find some preachers who did, but there's, I think there's something going on here. It's not, it's the same thing with these apostles. Why are all these people choosing to die, give up their fortunes, do everything they can just to see the name of Jesus Christ glorified if mm-hmm. there's not something to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you also hit on another theme that we could talk a little bit on with that, and that's that what do these people have to say about the topic that's been with us for so long, the problem of evil? Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem of evil is something they all deal with in, in their own ways. Um, and it kind of comes back to that same problem, the classic problem of suffering. If there's a good God, why is there you know, suffering in this world? And, and, and I want to I take a step back here and say, look, I am not nearly mature enough and educated enough to answer this extremely well. I will just do the best from you know, reading and editing and, and doing these sermons. What we have seen is they basically, you know, they put it all in the Bible. They say, look, the problem of evil is that man is a sinner. It's been there from the beginning when we when we first took that bite of the apple at the temptation. It is a part of this life, and you can approach it one of two ways. You can say the problem of evil means God doesn't exist, or the problem of evil is there, and so I better get right with God. 
uh, Jonathan Edwards in the classic sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which when I was doing research for this show, there's a literature journal that basically said like, even they they said they could never imagine not having sinners in the hands of an American of, of an angry God in American literary journals because no matter how far even our secular culture moves away from God and values they still can't they still can't get past the fact that that sermon has something to it and in that sermon he's basically like look guys evil you are evil the problem of evil is we are evil and there's a god who is waiting you know you can come to him now but there comes a time when that waiting is over and so i i feel like honestly these guys are, these guys look at you know, they they talk a lot about theology and they talk a lot about these heavy topics but they also there's just kind of a kind of a passionate and don't get too lost on that because if you can sit there and write and talk about the you know that stuff all day but remember like there's a time limit to your life and if you're an atheist i I say to you look i appreciate that you want to figure out this problem of evil i know that's important to you but trust me when i say like you would hate to be sitting there contemplating that and your life is over and you didn't come to a good solution you know theologians have been trying to figure out the exact best way to answer that for years. I think there's a lot of great answers. The problem of evil and the problem of suffering, though, you can see it in the lives of these preachers. It's a part of life. They don't ever give up the faith because of it. And I think if you if you learn about who God is and you really come to believe it and you come to live that out, you're going you're gonna to suffer a lot, probably, but you're going to kind of get to the same place where it's like, this suffering is God chastising me. It's not because God is out to get me. Yeah, I agree with that entirely, because in some ways also, the form of evil has been with us from the beginning in many cases, but it's also, in some way, a very modern problem, because we look at things now from the perspective, you know, what God's really supposed to do is to make sure that I am happy, yes. and that my life is good. I I was just posting on facebook and a group before the show started with someone saying you know if if there was a good god why isn't he doing something about all this suffering and i said hmm, i didn't realize it was god's responsibility to do something about this suffering when since when has that been his obligation mm-hmm. well yeah I, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier where i was saying like look these arguments are never changing they're the same ones it's the problem of evil it's the problem of suffering it's like uh, if, a, if you've read any books, you would know that this is not, you're not new. You've, you've been around a while. We've been talking about this problem of evil. Um, mm-hmm. And secondly, have you considered that he is doing something about the problem of evil? He says that he's going to end the world someday, that we're all going to be held to account and we're going to be judged for our actions. Are you, are you sure that you're not going to be a part of that problem of evil when that day comes? You know, we all think that we're in the generation and we're in the moment right now where we've got it figured out. But if, what if God decides to call all of us Americans for our part in abortion? Mm-hmm. What if God decides to call all of us Americans and our part for letting you know crime run free in a lot of cities and all these different things? If we were called to account for those evils, we would be a part of the problem. We humans are part of that problem of evil. And the solution is, look, you can come to Christ and love Jesus, and that is where you're going to find your answer. And uh, the recent sermon by J.C. Rye, I keep going back to that one, but he's literally talking about unbelief, so it's just a really good one. But it's funny, too. He says... You know, I will take seriously these doubts and these criticisms from these people when they have they have started uh, feeding the hungry, when they have started 
helping the poor, when it is them going from continent to continent delivering all the medicines, when it is them translating languages and helping build these schools. And, and I know that that's not always fair. There are atheists and people who don't know God who do a lot to help around the world. Yeah. But there's also very obvious evidence that historically speaking, Christians have built most of the orphanages, built most of the schools, have gone out of their way to reach hard to reach places, feed the hungry, do that. And so a lot of these people who are like, well, I can't believe in God because there's evil. It's like, and where is, and what are you doing in the part of that? You say evil is so hard that you can't believe in God, but you're not actually doing anything. While we Christians who accept that God has evil in this life for some reason, we just have to deal with it. We're going out of our way to alleviate the problem. When you look at that kind of a testimony, it's like, and which person seems to have the better argument for how to deal with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I always point out, you can have all these arguments that you want, but I still have all these demonstrative arguments, say, from Thomas Aquinas and others yeah. that are far more powerful because they are deductive arguments. They show that God exists. Yes. And it doesn't work, say, yeah, but either the greater yeah. argument the one with certainty refutes for one with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we can sit here and talk about, too, the problem of evil, and, and they would love to. I think the atheists would, would love to do that. Uh, we can sit here and talk about the problem of evil all day. You know, but if I go into a doctor's office and they go, you know, you have cancer. I can sit here and discuss what cancer is. We can have a nice argument. What is cancer exactly? What causes cancer? Do we know for sure? Blah, 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 all day long. Or I can start treatment and start getting the solution. <laughs> like, you know, there's only so long you can discuss the fact that, yes, human suffering, which the Bible explains pretty well, is a part of this life. Christians have done more to alleviate that suffering than any other group of people. So you can sit here and complain about the fact that, oh, well, God shouldn't allow suffering. Or you can look at the fact that, like, well, yeah, but God also is using people to alleviate that suffering. What are atheists doing in that process? Where, where is their great, you know, you care so much about suffering, you talk about it all day, but uh, what are you doing to fight it in people's actual day-to-day lives? Mm. You know, one of the most interesting books you can read actually says things about this is a book I've read years ago, and I have several quotes from it saved on my computer, called mm-hmm. An Atheist Defends Religion. And yeah. it's got an atheist looking at all these statements, and he has comments about religion, says religion's done the oh, most no. to help here. Oh, I lost you there for just a minute, Nick. Can you hear me now? I can hear you just now, just fine. Okay. Anyway, this guy says religion has done the most to help people, I mean, that doesn't make it true, of course. That'd be a very foolish argument to make. But we have been, once you've been on the front lines, doing the most good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I agree that, like, this doesn't necessarily mean God exists. You know, if you run into a group of Muslims who are doing great things for the world, does that automatically mean Allah exists? No, you know, it doesn't automatically mean that. But it does say something to the character and the beliefs of Christians, because a lot of times... There, there are you know, more than one group of atheists. We talked about one group who, they're never going to be changed. There are some people who are atheists who genuinely um, want to learn more about the world, and they're genuinely confused, and they're genuinely just, maybe they weren't taught, they don't know. They're kind of is seeking, we talked about the, the people who are really seeking. When they see people whose lives are changed, like these preachers we mentioned earlier, Hudson Taylor and these guys who, who are on their way to do one thing, and suddenly they just are changed completely, and they go live in a different direction. What a great testimony to the power of God. You know, we can't put that in a systematic book and explain it perfectly, but yet it's still real evidence of our faith in, in the lives that have been changed by it. And 
And I think that that is definitely a, a very important part of apologetics because, you know, we can, we've made the greatest logical deductive arguments. I hope we continue to do so. We need to be on the front line of that. But there are other people who are swayed by that kind of personal testimony, that re- relational or just seeing the history of it. And I think these people will be helped by these sermons too. Yeah, I, I do have to say I hear what you're saying, but there is still a problem that looks at that with caution. Because I do get concerned when people see that have nothing but their personal testimonies. And I think yes. if that's all you've got, you're in trouble. Yeah, and I would say, too, that I think that these great people of God, these theologians, have also written extensively on the subject. You know, I'm looking at their sermons and talking about what it is they're preaching day-to-day to their congregants. But, you know, we're giving you a taste of what they preach on Sunday. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, um, George, you know, Whitfield, uh, John Calvin, they also wrote extensively on apologetics. They had a lot to say about the veracity and truth of God, too. You know, these, these great theologians have tons to say about that as well as we as we know so what kind of stuff then did they come up because i think a lot of us could probably look and say do we really need to read that stuff today because you know we live in an age where we've done so much more research on the bible and we know so much more historical i mean even conservatives like myself would say yeah we know a whole lot more than they did I and mean, why do we need to go back and read the outdated <laughs> material when we got the updated stuff right here okay so for starters i don't know that we have all the best information today you know we we often talk about um it, you know we live in a world where they sell fake news this or outrage that or you know this and that and it's, so sometimes we don't always know if the information we're getting is veritable and true and a lot of these older guys they don't deal Today, we deal a lot with facts and numbers, right? Like when we get into a discussion, it's like, well, you know, 75% of people this and this and that. We, we do a ton of that statistical analysis pretty much all the time. But back before statistics and all the science was really where we were having our biggest, you know, discussions, it was almost all in the philosophical realm. These sermons are constantly quoting people like Voltaire and like, uh, you know, these, these famous people who are going through saying, well, you know, and they're making their arguments. Uh, they're saying, this is what they say. Here's why we know this isn't true. They do that throughout their sermons constantly because these were well-read men who understood the philosophy of their times and they were constantly in the middle of rebutting it. Yet, like I said before, these arguments haven't changed. The same arguments, the same overreaching ideas are still around. And also, we assume that because we live in the, you know, the most cutting-edge time that we have the best answers to these questions. And I would say you are underestimating how intelligent some of these men were. You know, and, and you yourself mentioned conservatism. Would we really say that today, our politicians today are the best at running the government? Or would we probably go backwards and say, no, the founding fathers came up with a really good system and not perfect. Man, slavery, we had some issues, but they came up with a really good system. And if you run it to its, you know, if you lift it up to its highest expectation, that would be probably the best way to run the government. Now, it's mentioned Samuel Cooper earlier. He has a whole sermon on what he thinks America could be. And he describes how America could be a shining beacon on a hill, how America could be a country that reaches out and educates the world and does all these things. I think his vision of what America could be and how to run the government is much superior to any of the visions that our current day guys probably have. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, a lot of these preachers and stuff, they have amazing arguments. One example, and this isn't... um, this isn't going to be an apologetics argument, but I just love this this one. There's a guy named Lemuel Haynes. He is an African-American preacher who had pretty much an all-white congregation in like 1800, uh, the late 1790s, early 1800s. So it's a, he himself is a really unique person in history. 
one day he is going off to another congregation. He's part of kind of a preaching circuit, but he has his own church. And on the way there, someone runs up to him and goes, hey, there's this well-known universalist. He's going to be the guy speaking at your church today. Lemuel Haynes turns around immediately, goes back to his church, sits through the sermon, uh, sermon in quotations probably, because it's universalism. They believe everybody goes to heaven, not exactly belief. And the guy gets up there, he delivers this universalist pretty sermon. And at the end, they, you know, they just kind of ask, so, you know, Reverend Haynes, do you have anything you'd like to add? And he goes, you know, I'm just going to say a few words. He gives up there and he gives the most excoriating critique of universalism I think you could probably ever find. He basically just gets up there and goes, I want to talk about Genesis 1 or Genesis 3. He goes, the devil said in there, you will not surely die. And that's been his oldest and longest sermon he's ever preached. That is from the beginning. He's always said you will not surely die. And uh, we still believe it today. And that's still a problem. And he just goes through it. And uh, at the very end, he just goes, and if anybody here in this audience was offended, I can't imagine why they would be, because all I've been talking about today is how the devil once said he will not surely die. And it's just, bam, I wish I could be in the audience and see that guy's face that he was talking to when he just completely rips universalism up and down and rips its biblical origins right there in the audience in front of them. Mm -hmm. I don't know that today we have those kind of moments and, and to at least just brush over those things and act like, oh, well, we know everything. No, I've never seen anybody mention that that's the original argument of universalism and that it comes from the devil in the Bible. But, you know, that probably is exactly the truth. Mm I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We have Troy Frazier from Revive Thoughts on talking about old preachers and what they have to say. But if you're here next week, it's going to be a short one, but he's going to be here for 40 minutes, but we got him on. Lee Strobar is going to be my guest. I've been wanting to have him on for some time. He's going to be on my guest. We're going to talk about his book, The Case for Miracles. So 40 minutes with Lee Strobar on The Case for Miracles. Now let's get back to Troy <laughs> Frazier with Revived Thoughts. I, I mentioned uh, the Tim McGrew earlier. Are you familiar with him? Any? Uh, why don't you fill me in a little bit? Tim McGrew is a professor at Western Michigan University, very devout Christian. Mm-hmm. And one of the statements he's always impressed on people is read old books. Yes. So, I mean... It's kind of, I, I've heard that statement. I definitely am aware of that quote. And this is basically the same thing. It's just listen to and read, by the way, old sermons. And we talk about, we preach through the sermons. We have a new speaker come on every week. They give the sermon, um, give you kind of a different voice in history. But our goal is that you hear the sermon and you go, I want to learn more about that. That really impacted me. Let me go find out some more information. And then you will go check out their old sermons. Because, I mean, Charles Spurgeon, we did one of his sermons. There are books upon books of his sermons out there. You need to be aware of as many of them as as, as, as reasonable to be aware of, right? We have that same idea where it's like, look, you 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 hear 
you understand your preacher when you go to church on Sunday and or you listen to the you know the latest and greatest sermons from the great speakers of today and a lot of them really are great. You you hear them, but there is a bit of an echo chamber effect. Mm-hmm. You are kind of hearing what is in a bubble. Every one of these people, for like ninety nine percent of us, are living in the West. They grew up in you know either Europe or America. They kind of experience the same things as us, and that's good in one way. We can relate to each other. We can um, really understand each other's stories. We kind of we use the same language. When one of them says disciple or orthodox, we think the same things, right? So there is a little bit of that. That's really good. I appreciate that. But also, we're in a bubble. What If one of them is kind of pushing the wrong idea out there, it's very easy for it to disseminate. If if one of them, if, if there's a blind spot that our modern preachers aren't really noticing, they're all going to probably not notice it together because they all go to the same conferences and listen to each other. If there's something not coming out, it's true. And also, let's, you know, we kind of mentioned it before. Historically, these preachers have suffered a lot. And I know I keep going back to that, but it's important to note, like, our preachers today... <laughs> maybe haven't like D.L. Moody volunteered and saw the Civil War firsthand or like Jay Gresham uh, Machen who also volunteered and saw World War I firsthand. Maybe our preachers today haven't um, done like Johann Tauler and literally lived through the Black Plague. There's something we can learn from these people because of those experiences and just and nothing else, give, give us more depth to our own spiritual life because that, again, I, I love our preachers today, but I don't think any of them can say they've kind of gone through some of these experiences. At least I know I haven't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, of course, people in their each day and age, they have their own blind spots back in Whitfield's day and other days. They had spots that they were blind to, but the mm-hmm. thing is that... We we have different things that we're blind about. So when we read someone from another culture or another time, then we can see but very easier. Oh, that's what I'm missing in this time. Like yeah. something that I know is for our day and age, we are very big on everything being scientific. Exactly. I mean, this isn't to mock science. Of course, I think science is important and awesome, but. There are other ways of thinking, and we need to get those ways of thinking sometimes. Yes. Uh, and it's funny, too. Like Sometimes you'll read perspectives or hear these perspectives, and you'll go, wow, that's just so different from what I'm used to, but I actually needed to think about that. Jonathan Swift has a sermon, and a lot of people don't even realize he was a Christian. A lot of people definitely don't realize he preached, but he was actually, that was like his full-time gig when he wasn't writing uh, satire like Gulliver's Travels and Amaz's Proposal. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he spent time preaching. And he has a sermon, Wisdom of the World. And basically he says, why are you Christians spending so much time reading Greek philosophers for how to live your life? You know, and yeah, he's answering a problem that's a little bit more to their day where we don't really have that problem. Today, if you were to ask somebody and they were like, yeah, I'm reading a little Aristotle, you would think, whoa, that guy, he is very intelligent. He's going after it, right? And nowadays we would, we would be wishing Christians would spend more time reading a work of antiquity. But if you take that same idea and go, okay, Christians, why are you going to worldly sources and you're going to all these, um, you know, self-help and psychologists and psychiatrists when you have the word of God, right? And if you take that same message and apply it that way, it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. He basically says too, he goes, can you take a thousand Greek philosophers and put all their work on one side and compare it to a single line of scripture? No, you can't. At the end of the day, the word of God always wins, right? And it's the same thing too. It's like, yeah, you know, there's a perspective there. Like we don't think about that enough as a church, but I think there's something that Jonathan Swift saw in his day that's just happening the same way in our day, but we don't say it like that anymore. 
And yet, Jonathan Swift was not anti-science, by the way. He was a huge astronomer. He spent time studying the moon. I mean, there's a crater on the moon named after him because he predicted that, I believe it was Mars had moon. Maybe it was Mars or Jupiter had moons, and no one else had predicted that until that point. When they found that to be true, they took a crater on the moon and ate. So he was a very intelligent, well-read. He believed and understood the world around him, but he was criticizing the idea of finding our wisdom in the world around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, I mean, this isn't to say that, you know, there's no wisdom to yeah. be found things. I mean, I know a lot of people who are strong Christians and very big fans of, say, Jordan Peterson. Sure, For example. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm saying, hey, don't discount what we've already got here because what we've yes. already got is pretty darn good. Exactly. You know, yeah, Jordan Peterson, he's got a lot of, you know, pretty interesting and cool things to say. But you shouldn't be relying on him over, you know, a thousand Jordan Peterson books will never compare to Matthew. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, when you're going through and you have all these works here, do you also have works from other cultures as well? Or is it all Western? Okay, so and that's a that is that is a quite that is one of the things that actually eats at my heart the hardest about this series, is that we pretty much have exclusively just Western works, and then we have some old uh, fathers of the faith, uh, and, and don't let me forget this. There's one sermon we need to talk about that I think is an excellent argument for biblical historicity. Don't let me forget, but we'll we'll get to that in a bit probably, but. It is extremely hard to find sermons from the East. It is extremely hard to find sermons from missionaries. You know, you're relying that somebody wrote this down and kept it. You know, we have so many great men of God who preach so many sermons, but nobody was there to write it down, so we'll never know what they said. We have so many great men of God who preach so many great sermons, but, you know, during the days of the Catholic oppression or things like that, like those sermons could have very easily been lost. And if these guys are getting burned at the stake, who's going to hold on to their writing? Because they might get burned at the stake. Mm-hmm. There's so many, or some, you know, Jonathan Edwards went and preached for a time, basically in a small church to, you know, Native Americans, anybody who would come way out in the middle of nowhere. I don't think anybody was writing those sermons down. Sadly, they probably were some of his best. And in the same way, I would kill to find a great sermon from, you know, a, a preacher in India in the 1700s or just some of these people. I'd, I would love to see their perspective and hear their thoughts, but it's extremely difficult and they're very rare to find them. Any opportunity we can to find them, we are, we are, hard, we are hard at work at doing it. You know, we contact universities and, bar, and say, hey, we see you have a sermon here. Can we, you know, get that from your library and use it? So we, we reach out, but for the time being, it's pretty much all Western sermons, sadly. And are they all by men, or do you have any great female preachers of the past, too? Uh, that, you know, there have so far not been a whole lot of women preachers. Yes. Uh, the idea of pre- women preaching, even in of itself, is kind of newer. Obviously, yes. there have been uh, women throughout history who have, you know, stepped into that role. But the idea of them being common is definitely in the last hundred years. And... We have those sermons recorded in audio. We don't, Revive Thoughts doesn't feel any need to touch. When you can listen to the original speaker, why should we get involved? So if it's recorded in audio, we don't deal with it. We let you listen to the original speaker. We think that'll do the job for you. We are simply interested in bringing these old ones out of libraries and putting them into uh, into your ears. And we also update the language, by the way. Some of, you know, I'm talking about people from John Calvin. I think it's great if you want to go back and read them. Um, but a lot of people don't want to sit there and listen to old English. So we, 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 we modernize it. We make it a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. today. So when the, when the issue of women preaching, we don't have 
I, I very mm-hmm. I have not seen in my research. And I spent a lot of time looking this up. We hardly mm-hmm. have any lady preachers out there, and yeah. we're writing them down if they were doing it. And I'm curious also: is all these sermons from say the Protestant Reformation on? Are we going to go back in the past and see any Catholic and Orthodox messages? Yep. So uh, this week. That the, and I don't, uh, you know, I'm not sure 100% when this is getting released, but our next episode is going to be on Chrysostom. So we have, mm-hmm. you know, obviously somebody from way back when. Uh, we have another guy who is currently working on getting St. Augustine as a sermon for us. So we have people like that from, you know, the very old days. We also have uh, Johann Tauler. He was a monk who lived in Strasbourg during the Black Plague outbreak. His story is incredible. He didn't leave Strasbourg, um, even though they had an earthquake like the year before. Then the Black Plague comes. And if you know anything about the Black Plague, obviously you know that half or a third of the people died. In some countries, it was even up to 70%. And where he was, I mean, a third at least of the people died. And of priests, it was definitely 45% to half. So, I mean, just imagine in the course of a year, your neighbors are disappearing. Houses are just going empty. You know, people are fleeing the cities. They realize quickly that this is a human cost problem. People flee the cities like droves, but he stays and preaches and preaches and preaches. Um, he's looking around. Half of his, co- you know, co-workers and fellow priests are just dying from this disease, but he stays in there. And he preaches this sermon on uh, how basically, you know, Jesus's miracle of bringing the deaf ears to hear. And he talks about basically how, um, you will never hear the word of God if God is not doing that in your life and doesn't open that, you know, open your e- open your ears like He did that uh, in that back in that miracle. Really cool, interesting guy. So we do try to bring on uh, some people that we would uh, we are you know evangelical. So we try to bring on people who we think would align with that. We're not really going to have somebody on and talk about how transubstantiation is. You know, it is real, and we're gonna you know we're all, we're not looking for um, somebody to talk about the Eucharist really being the blood of God. No, that's not really what we're going to do. And it's great Catholic, you know, to people who want to believe that, okay, it's just not where we're coming from as much. Um, we're looking for people who would agree with overall evangelicalism in general. And uh, at, at the same time, Catholic people who lived before the Reformation, we're not going to hold you to the standard that you need to have the same beliefs as the Reformers because you lived before the Reformation. That would be impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what exactly are you looking for? What's the criteria when you decide, when you're saying, we want to get a good sermon? What are you looking for? There's a couple of different things. Um, some people, it, I kind of approach each sermon and episode a little differently. I have three main things. Sometimes, like Charles Spurgeon, we knew he was going to be in there from the beginning um, because that speaker is just so profound. We wanted to get his sermons and his story out there. So there are some people where I'm like, I look up the name. I'm expecting you know them others it's kind of like in the beginning when i talked about i was reading a sermon you know overcoming fear and i was blown away by it so i really wanted that sermon and from there i kind of look up who that person is and so in the case of dietrich bonhoeffer the sermon almost came first and then the person came afterwards and sometimes that's dangerous we had a person named alexander white on or you know we did his sermon and the sermon was so good i was like this is great he's talking about prayer it's so good and then i looked up the person i go oh no like in the beginning of his life he did really well but towards the end of his life he basically hung out with a lot of people and a lot of people who thought yeah the bible is basically a metaphor it's it's good ideas but there's no you know it's not truth it's not sacred and he didn't ever go into that realm and claim that himself but 
he never really repudiated the people around him that were saying that either. And so he's known in his final days for going liberal, which is a total, which is very sad because his sermons are excellent all the way through. And so we put that in our show too. We, we, we trust the audience to make that decision for themselves. We trust the audience to be intelligent enough to decide if I don't want to listen to this because it's liberal and I think it would, you know, be a problem. You, 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 we'll let you know. And you, you, you turn that off yourself. If you listen to that sermon and go, you know, this is by a Catholic by living the black plague, but he doesn't agree with my uh, my beliefs, you know, and exactly isn't down the same uh, orthodoxy as me. Okay, you know, we trust you to be able to handle that. We're not going to sugarcoat it for you or protect you, but we do our best to try to find, generally speaking, um, sermons that would agree with, you know, the general ideas of the Protestantism. Yeah. What do you want people to get out of all these messages, ultimately? Um, I mean, ultimately, our goal is that people will grow closer to God. These people approach God, they have new ways, not new ways, they have old ways, actually, of exegesis and thinking and ideas. We want them to see, hey, God is real. Here's some new info. You know, if you could get another great sermon, if you could, I say it like this, like, if you found out tomorrow that Charles Spurgeon or some of these great theologians had a book that had never been published, and here it is coming out, people would go to it in droves. Well, these sermons are kind of like those, you know, are sitting there on dusty on um, shelves, Mm. No one's touching them. You can grow closer to God, learn a lot about theology, and learn a lot about your faith by hearing them. So the first step is we want you to be edified. We hope that these sermons will help you in that direction and help you see things that you didn't see before. Secondly, we really want these sermons to encourage you to go read more. Uh, you yeah. talked about Tim McGrew's quote, go and pick up an old book. I said it earlier, go to the primary sources. We're hoping that by by realizing that these sermons are accessible, that you know Charles, that these, uh, these famous names, B.B. Warfield, aren't actually as thick and scary as you think they are, that people will be encouraged to go pick up some books. Go read them yourself. Go learn more about these men, who they were, and go to the primary sources. Go, go really figure out what you think, because I think that would really encourage a lot of people. I think we Christians would become... Ex- excellent apologist if we just spend a little bit more time reading the classics and a little bit more time learning what, like you said earlier, Thomas Aquinas had to say. If we could really go back to the sources and understand them, I think our overall ability to explain the message mm-hmm. and explain the criticisms would go through the roof. Yeah. And, oh, go ahead, sorry. And you've got the great advantage of this kind of thing also that people, a lot of people might not be able to find the time to sit down and read a yeah. book sometimes. But, they can listen to a podcast while they're driving or working out yes. at the gym or something of that yeah. sort. Exactly. And then the third thing we hope to, and this one, I, I, I want to say this right because I want to say it in love. I don't want to come off you know, arrogant or judgmental, but we really do encourage and hope that people who are in the church, people who are in ministry, pastors and preachers, will maybe pause just a moment. And if I could say it in a way that sounds good, maybe think to yourself, like when you're preaching, when you're delivering the sermon, I know you're putting 20 hours in or you're putting, you know, you're putting work into it. You want to deliver God's word well. But just keep in mind, would someone 200 years from now want to dig up your sermon and put it out there for people? You know, are you really delivering sermons that are both weighty intellectually, but passionate for the heart? Are you delivering the kind of sermons that people need to hear or are you you know are you clocking it in are you really so worried about offending someone that you're hiding the truth are you really so worried about um because one thing you will see these sermons these guys never worry about offending anybody they are so you could argue maybe too far they're so brutal they just go right in and deliver the truth and they say that's what god's word says that's what we believe and these guys go after it and they're saying it at a time where some of them their lives are on the line for it and yet they do not hold back at all um 
I think we can learn a lot about how to be preachers, how to be men of God, how to work in the church and how to do these things well by checking how these people in the past did it. You know, John Bradford was a man who was called the holiest man of the reformers, by the reformers. He um, lived and was preaching basically in the court of the king. The king dies, he gets up and delivers this sermon and basically tells the truth. He says, and we are worse off for the king dying because the queen, who is a Catholic, is not going to be as good as the king. He gets sent to jail, I mean, not long after saying that. But he didn't hold back to tell the truth. He's, he's still saying, like, hey, that's a very, you know, political, contemporary issue, right? Like, a lot of times we go, oh, preachers, you shouldn't get involved in politics. He is straight up calling out a politician on the stage. And yet, he's saying, look, the gospel is going to, we are, we are basically feeling the wrath of God for this person being taken away from us. And we're getting now this, basically, this person is not going to be pro-gospel. Yeah, Maybe yeah. that's too far, but it's a good way to look at it. Yeah, and, you know, I think I could say even... You know what I mean? We could have some listeners for show who are Catholic or Orthodox, and I think that's yeah. awesome. Even if you disagree with what he said, he had the guts to say it at yes. least. And I think, and I, I, I've mentioned Catholic like it's bad. I want to say, I think we, I think I, I would be very surprised if any Catholics would disagree that, you know, killing the reformers was probably not ideal, right? I think, I think there's a stark difference between people who are Catholic of faith today and, you know, what, what practices they carry out and the ones that were being carried out in the 1500s. I think that, you know, in general, these guys have kind of an issue with Catholics, but that's because that's who's persecuting them at the time. Obviously, we're dealing with, so I have nothing against, you know, anybody who is of Catholic faith today, anybody who is of Orthodox faith today i'm talking about in that era that was something they had to deal with mm-hmm. well i don't think there's enough time right now to get to the next question here before taking a break for donations here so i'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the beautiful waters podcast everything we do is supported by listeners like you and if you'd like to make a donation please go to website at deeperwatersaprojects.com there's a link on the side. It says, Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And uh, my, <clears throat> that's a, uh, you click on that link, you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. That's my in laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation, you send it, you get in touch with me or Ari or Mike or Debbie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. It will be tax deductible. And you, uh, you can also go and buy some ebooks. One that I've written, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. And uh, you can also uh, get ones that I've written or co-written. Or, or have a co-written, I should say. Defying Inerrancy, Contextualizing Inerrancy, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, um, Christian Answers, Risk Generations, Questions, and of course, the Mentioners Project. And... Then um, you can also just go on iTunes and leave a pause review for a Deeper Wireless podcast. I'd really love to see them. Now, uh, Troy, do you have any organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, I People can donate to, man, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I donate to uh, organizations that Nick Peters just described. Mm-hmm. And we don't actually have any charities or organizations that we currently work with. And we are not a nonprofit ourselves, so... Donate to your local church and help them out as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Well, um, can you uh, go into detail now about this sermon on historical veracity? Okay. 
So I think you, know, you you're you're an apologist, so you you would know this better than me. But one of the great you know criticisms, one of the things that we hear all the time, is that well, the Bible isn't accurate because you know it people it's been heavily edited, or it has been it was compiled in in you know 300 years after the fact it was written, right? Or we know that you know people weren't even able to read the Bible, and so that those things were just kind of held away from the average person. I'm sure you you know that's a pretty common argument. Am I correct? Yeah. So there is a huge uh, issue with this idea that people didn't have the Bible in access and that the Bible was compiled after the fact and that it was an issue because there's a sermon called Second Clement. And Second Clement is called Second Clement because when they originally found it, they thought it was um, a letter and then there was already a letter called First Clement. And so they believed that this was a letter Second Clement. Over time and study, they realized, no, okay, this isn't a letter. This is actually, we believe it's a sermon written down. And we actually don't even believe it's by Clement anymore. We don't know who the author of it is, but we believe it is, pretty much every biblical scholar, every historical scholar is like, this is a sermon. And it was dated between the years 100 AD and 140 AD. If you read this sermon, which you can go Google and find it today, if you read this sermon, look at the sermon, you'll find pretty much every book of the New Testament outside of John is quoted in this sermon, which dates to like five years after John the Apostle died. And you could probably say the book, the reason John the Apostle isn't in there is maybe because he was still, you know, he'd only recently died and stuff like that. Maybe his works, you know, Revelation and those things hadn't quite yet made it all the way out across, you know, the Middle East or maybe hadn't been studied. Maybe this guy just didn't quote him because he didn't quote him. But you'll find that almost, I mean, several works of the Old Testament or the New Testament and the Old Testament are right there in that that sermon. How could this guy be preaching something that was be yet to be compiled or something that wasn't out there unless he had access to those works? And if this guy who made this sermon has access to these works, guess what? I'm guessing a lot of other Christians did too. And this is a great, in my opinion, historical evidence in favor of the idea that what we say happens, which is the apostles die, but as they die and they're making these writings, these writings are going out, people are collecting them, they're writing them down, they're making this evidence and they're putting this together, not because they're sitting there going, we need to prove this happened someday, although there's a little bit of that, but they're just doing it because they want to be edified by this but as they do that certain works are being picked up on and being considered these are real evidences for god and these are not second clement is a sermon that does that and if you take it as early as date 100 a.d i mean we're talking five years after the apostle john dies if not then we're talking at latest 140 a.d which is you know still very early evidence that these these scriptures are exactly as we say they are and the quotes are you know exactly match up with the versions we have too yeah, it's been said that you could uh, recreate so much of the New Testament just by going by the church fathers alone. Yes, and an area where you can do that is through the sermon. So when you hear somebody say, oh, the Bible was heavily edited, it was put together after the fact, you know, they didn't believe this and that, you go, these people were preaching it, and we find bits of their sermons here and there today. How do you preach a sermon if it's been edited? How does this match up perfectly? Now, I will say to Second Clements, you know, um, one defect, because I'm an honest person, I'm going to give it transparently, give you this one defect. One problem with it is it does quote a lot from the Gospel of Thomas, which is not really considered biblically on the up and up. Mm-hmm. So there is flaws with it. It's not a perfect sermon. and um, But it's also amazing that within, maybe within five years of the Apostle John, so most people would date it to around 95 AD, I think, um, 
within such a close time frame, maybe a sermon was preached that aligns with a lot of our faith very closely today. Now, there are things in it that I think we would look at that and go, well, don't know where you got that. Again, the Gospel of Thomas, a little bit odd, but we're talking like 80 to 90% of it's pretty solid stuff. And that's incredible that that would match something 1900 years later. It's just, it's an amazing thing how how continuous our faith is throughout history. And again, this 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 sermon is quoting the New Testament right after the New Testament is being written. Yeah, I was going to say at some extent where we said New Testament's written after the fact. Well, yeah, of course it is. That's what history normally is written after the fact. We, we yeah. very rarely write history before it happens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would have been nice if there could have been reporters going around copying the words of Jesus, you know, exactly. But even then, uh, we have reporters today, and no one goes around going, reporters are 100% perfect and honest, and everything they write down is true. No. Nope. And that would have been the same thing back then. So, I mean, it's kind of a funny thing where it's like, we wish we could have had the exact words, but we don't even trust the exact words of people whose job it is to do that today. Yeah, I, I find it so interesting when I meet all these people who say, don't you think Jesus could have done these things in this time when we have cameras and tools like that can help? And I think, yeah, and you know exactly what would happen. That was photoshopped. That mm-hmm. was faked. Well, and also, we would have never gotten to this era with cameras and photos if it hadn't been for the fact that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. I, very yeah. long time ago, saw a comment on the internet where it is completely silly, but it's a great example where someone said, we should have never gone, the Americans should have never gone to, and they were being serious, by the way, it was on, that, it was on something, they were just putting this comment out there, they said, Americans should have never gone into World War I because we got involved in a war we didn't need to be in, and we could have really used those troops in World War II. And you're like, wow, there's so many, the more you think about that comment, the more you realize how many things are historically wrong about that comment. But it's funny because some people don't realize you don't get World War II without World War I. Like you don't get some, you don't get the age we live in without Jesus 2000 years ago. Yeah, it would have been nice if Jesus could have come at a time where we could film him. But guess what? Uh, we wouldn't have ever gotten to where we are if it hadn't been for the fact that he did what he did then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I agree with that entirely. But I think people just take things so much for granted here. Yes. Now, you also said, we've asked about how these people are addressing the skeptics of their day. At mm-hmm. the same time, they also had to address the common man of their mm-hmm. day and help them out, didn't they? Yes, they did. Um, and it's funny, sometimes, like, I-, I can't remember who it was recently, but somebody, one of the sermons just goes, oh, it was Whitfield. He just goes, uh, we're going to talk about something that might be a little bit over the head to the common people for a minute. And he just goes off and just basically talks about some very high lofty stuff that he kind of comes back and goes, okay, I'm talking to the rest of you guys again. I'm glad that preachers probably don't do it quite like that today. Um, but it is funny. I find that most of these sermons, though, most of these preachers, they don't look down on their audience. They will speak about um, very high and lofty things. They talk about you know, Jonathan Swift was quoting all kinds of Greek philosophers while he was taking down the Greek philosophers. B.B. Warfield was quoting all kinds of works of antiquity. And, you know, he was at Princeton Theological Seminary, maybe that part of it. But these guys will have no problem dropping quotes and talking about people that lived. And they're just, they just assume that their audience is tracking with them and keeping up with them. I do respect that. I think that is the way you should in general do it. You should not preach to go over their heads. You certainly shouldn't preach loftily on purpose, but you should never underestimate the intelligence of your audience. I think the common man has a lot in common with these things. On the other hand, too, these guys, they are they are very blunt when they talk about sin. They are very blunt when they talk about what the, you know, D.L. Moody, he had a sermon where he was just like, hey, uh, some of you guys prefer to go 
riding your bikes around town instead of coming to church. What's going on with that? He's like, you guys, um, they, they're always very blunt when they're talking about the person of Christ and when they're talking about uh, the personal sins of their congregation. I love that because they have no problem basically you know, giving that straightforward evidence. And they also have no problem about being well-read and being able to answer the skeptics of their day. I really, and it's so hard. I, I love our pastors today. I think everyone works so hard in the church, but I really hope we can all strive to be so good at that dual world where, yeah, you, you know, um, uh, J.C. Ryle, he wrote, he was a very highly educated person. He knew theology. He knew a lot of, you know, he could speak. He, he got awards in college at Oxford for Greek and Hebrew and his ability to translate that stuff in Latin. And yet he wrote gospel tracts that were given away for a penny, basically, um, that were basically considered the lowest form of writing you could do. It would be almost as if someone, uh, a famous theologian today was writing just spammy blogs, hoping to catch your attention because he was using something that would access a lot more people. And he didn't care that that wasn't going to win him any theological prestige. He was just interested in getting the word out to as many people as humanly possible. Yet at the same time, had he been brought to a discussion by some of the best theologians of his day, he would have been able to handle it no problem. Hi, this is Gary Habermas. I'm the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I teach full-time in the PhD program here, and I have been a guest on the program by Nick Peters on many occasions, and over the years I've noticed how many excellent guests he gets and I can tell you personally that Nick reads everything that comes his way. He's a great interviewer. He's got good insight and questions, and I highly recommend his program. Yeah, I think something that's come out of it that's pretty important to stress is that these people were willing to talk about the issues of day because they, they were well-read in the skeptics of their time. And that could be a lesson to our own preachers today is, hey, uh, don't be scared to talk about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Don't be scared to talk about transgenderism and don't yeah. think your 501c3 is a sacred cow that you have to protect under all circumstances. No, exactly. We uh, today in the church and just in general, we, we, and, and there are, and it's so hard. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think any of us wants our pulpit pastor to get up there and go, hey, here's what party to vote for. You know, here's, here's what you have to think. But we do want our pulpit pastor to be intelligent and well-read and be able to answer the tough issues and to know when to take that stand. I think pretty much all of us would agree pro-life is one of those things. You've got to stand on that, right? And yet we see a lot of people who go, well, I'm extremely worried about offending someone. But if you look historically at these creatures, these guys were not making that same concern. They were getting in there and telling people, like, this is what you're doing wrong. And had they not done that, I don't know that we would have gotten over things like slavery. I don't think that if these pastors had, you know, pushed these issues and said, hey, look, this is wrong, we would have had that. And there's nothing wrong with being an outspoken bulldog fighting for what's right. B.B. Warfield was said, to, because his wife was sick, he had a lot of time to read books and write articles. And it was said that he, it, it, maybe this is an exaggeration, but it was said that he wrote so many articles, he answered so many things that came out. He was so on top of everyone, basically, that like his critics, the, like theological liberals and atheists of their day were almost scared to get published because they knew B.B. Warfield would come after them directly because he had the time, basically. And so it was almost like after he died, that's when um, Princeton suddenly swung towards liberalism, but it waited till he died because there was so much weight behind his one voice alone almost. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, we can't do it in an unloving way. We don't want to be known as 
you know, dogmatic per se, but at the same time, if we're dogmatic on the truth, sometimes that's the way it's got to be done. It's hard. I really respect pastors for trying to walk that line, but I really think we shouldn't be scared to speak the truth. And especially in our day and age, when skepticism is, I mean, skepticism was around then, but I think it's far more prominent today yeah. than it was then. And our young people especially are encountering these questions. And we live in a day and age where even a lot of Christians, I've known Christians that they got divorced and their adult life people are my parents' age. They start dating someone again. What are they doing before too long? Living together. Yep. This would have been unthinkable a long time ago, and now it's happening. These are the issues that are being dealt with. Yeah. And you have to wonder if, you know, if fearfully, hopefully not, but you have to wonder if sometimes maybe part of the reason people are so openly bold about their sins is because they know they don't have to worry about anybody calling them to account. I mean, how many churches could you be unmarried, attend every single Sunday and for years, and you know that no one would ever even bring it up. They would never even mention the fact that, hey, maybe you should consider getting married because mm-hmm. that's uh, a sin in the Bible, right? Like, yeah. there are so many churches you could choose where that would be a thing. Now, I'm not saying the second somebody comes through the door, they're, they're, they're interested in learning about God for whatever reason that you need to slap that on them. But I'm saying that we need to be willing to preach the truth and hope that people are convicted by it and get out there and do that. Um, you mentioned homosexuality and transgenderism and stuff like that. I know for a fact, I can't think of a single one of the guys we've ever done in our sermon series who would just roll over and be like, that's cool. That's fine. Or, you know, we don't want to offend the homosexual. No, they would get in there and say, like, the truth is the truth. And there was a study that came out recently, and I apologize, I can't quote who did it, so I might be, might have been a bad source, but it said, basically they asked, um, I think, I want to say it was Gallup, but they asked uh, people who are, you know, openly homosexual, so, you know, what kind of churches do you attend? And they found that two-thirds of them attend conservative traditional churches, and they asked them, they're like, what's going on with this? Like, why are you attending conservative traditional churches? They don't even affirm your beliefs. And they go, yeah, I know, but they they show love to who I am as a person. You know, they they may not accept what I believe, but they're they're doing what I think a church is supposed to do, and I like that they're preaching something that, like, is actually worthwhile to my life. You know, we... We think if we can just make things new and package it better, people will want to come to God. But in reality, the truth is the truth. And sometimes the oldest way to look at it is the best, especially to uh, Generation Z and Generation Millennials have shown that they have a more of an affection for older things. Like the high church is getting younger people in it for like the first time in a long time. Like people, you know, you walk around town and people are putting you know, they love brick walls and they love this authentic oldness and people are dressing up like lumberjacks from the 1800s. And it's because there's this desire for, in a very unstable time, something firm underneath their ground. And so old truth, like these old sermons, is actually the perfect way to say, hey, you know what? Uh, we have the great latest and greatest sermons, but we also have the old sermons too. When I was in Bible college, one of the books I was assigned to read in the class was Tom Raynor's book, Surprising Insights from the Unchurched, about... Uh, what got people who were previously unchurched start coming to church. And one of the biggest draws for people was said was, Adam, you know, we look so much at, say, for worship wars or what color of a carpet is or any number of things like this. The number one draw for most people in giving them to come to church, good preaching. Mm-hmm. It was good preaching is the one, and I, I read recently that a good preaching and a good community. When you get that by preaching the truth and teaching people how to love one another, and then just preaching from the Bible, that is what people want to hear. Because um, honest to goodness, there is no entertainment 
There is no show. There is no fog lights. There's nothing you can, and those things aren't bad. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. if you don't have good preaching, if you get up and it's just a self-help sermon, mm-hmm. and the Bible isn't mentioned, God is treated like, you know, he's your nice friend that will come alongside. There is none of that will ever compare to sleeping in on Sunday. You will never, you know, you will never draw them out of their blankets that way. And I know there are big churches that do it. I'm just saying, that is not going to change their life. I think you're going to lose the culture aiming for that. But if you're preaching the truth, use whatever means you need to. As long as that truth is being preached, you will have people coming to Christ's lives being changed. And there will always be believers going to that church, I think. Yeah, I've, uh, whenever I talk about reaching young people today, I, what I usually do is take a whiteboard and draw a line down the center and say, okay, let's talk about what we're offering. Like, what are we offering young people? And we put things like, you know, laser tag, movie nights, pizza parties, concerts. Not saying these are wrong in themselves, but that's mm-hmm. pretty much what we're offering. We're say, okay, now let's go and say, they go off to college, they're living in a secure world. What are they being offered at college? Oh, sex, drugs, partying, yeah. alcohol. Um, and then I'd say, okay, realistically, not what you would prefer, but which one of these lists do you think seems most attractive mm-hmm. to young people? It's definitely the one on the right. I mean, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd probably choose the one on the right. Exactly. I mean, uh, how about this? We have a worldview that encourages you to have consequences for your actions, and there's a worldview out there that doesn't. Which one do you really want? I mean, at the end of the day, if we weren't believers and we didn't truly believe this was true, we would all, I think, go in the direction of no consequences. Thank you. I, I don't like pain. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we we would all choose the path of least resistance. Exactly. If it was necessary. Now, how long also, when you ask, is the average sermon? Because I understand there are times, like in the times of the Puritans, mm. that a preacher could speak for three or four hours. Is someone yeah. going to be listening for, to a three-hour podcast or a four-hour podcast with just one sermon going on? I mean, if only, right? But no, <laughs> we don't actually have any sermons that long. And there is something, too, where sermon, the way sermons are preached has changed. So it is thought that at least, and we don't know exactly which groups did this for sure, but definitely there were groups of people who they would go forward, they would preach, and it was kind of like they would have a discussion part afterwards where like usually the preacher would kind of give an exegesis and then, you know, the crowd and him would have a kind of talk back and forth. That could last for a very long time. Um, And we don't, you know, it could be a very long time. And let me tell you, some of these sermons I've had to edit because I edit them down. I don't, I don't, I don't lull the audience into a sleep. We try not to have anything longer than 35 to 40 minutes. That is like, you're, we have right. one or two sermons. I mean, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is a long sermon. I, I couldn't cut much of it because I just love it so much. So that's like 40 minutes. That is the long end of one of our sermons. Mm-hmm. You know, John Newton had a sermon the, that he preached right before he released the song Amazing Grace, which at the time was called, I think, Faith and Expectations Review, uh, which I really think that uh, Amazing Grace is catchier sounding. Um, <laughs> But there was a sermon that came before that. That sermon was like 10 minutes long. That's at least what we had left of it to history. I'm sure it was a little bit longer at the time. Um, I want to say it was Whitfield, but it might have been someone else who said, uh, who said if, you, if you're preaching for longer than 30 minutes, you either, have, you either are an angel or you have an angel for an audi- or angels for an audience because there's nothing that people are going to be interested in longer than 30 minutes. And I, I think that is very true. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have those discussions, those four-hour discussions where the church and congregants are having it back and forth. We just have the sermon. So we keep them the 30, you know, 30 to the 40 minutes. If they, go lo- if they are longer, I edit them myself to make sure that they aren't because we don't want to bore you. The goal is we give you a taste and you want to go learn more. The goal is not that we drown you in a boring sermon and you get lost in the weeds. Uh, Samuel Cooper, I mentioned him earlier, the guy from the Revolutionary War, Mm -hmm. he had really interesting stuff in his sermon. He was quoting people from the British Parliament who were arguing in favor of the colonies, who were saying, like, the colonialists have the right to rebel against us British. If we British were doing, were being put under the same boot that the Americans were being put under, we would have revolted 20 years ago. These guys are good people, and they have the right to have their own nation. I've never heard that before in my life, that, the, that there were people in Britain who were pro-America. I've never heard that before. This was brand new to me. But I had to cut parts of that down because it's also very long and not related to what we're trying to teach to, to get the message across here. It's the first time I'd ever heard it too, so that was pretty interesting for me yeah, here. No. Right yeah, was, it blew us away. <laughs> I was thinking when you talk about most of them, like 30 or 40 minutes, I think, wow, this uh, podcast must be the longest time you've ever spent on a podcast, Finn. It actually is, yes. Um, we were like, oh, it's a two-hour podcast. I was like, okay, well, the Lord willing, we'll, we'll be fine here. Because, yeah, our and our segment of that podcast is about 10, you know, 10 minutes. We give you the history. Five minutes at the end, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, just help you see some life applications. And then we're done. There's a 30 to 40-minute sermon in the middle, but we don't preach that. We give that to another speaker to bring it to life for you. Mm-hmm. So in all, if, you're, if you're listening to my voice and going, I couldn't listen to that for 40 minutes. Don't worry. I'm not, I'm not on there that much. <laughs> now, when you have someone come in and do a speaking i mean is it a professional speaker that you have come or what good question so yes and no uh we have we put it out to our audience we say hey this is the project we're working on we would love for you to come alongside and preach a sermon with us we ask that you have a good microphone we're going to kind of check your voice and make sure you, you at least fit with what the sermons we want are and that's it we leave it to uh the audience to come forward. However, we have had several radio hosts come forward. We have had some, you know, pastors of some sizable churches come forward. We have had uh, professional speakers come forward. So it's been great because people who enjoy speaking hear this and they go, I'd be interested in that. And they get in there and do it. At the same time, this is an audience uh, driven project in a lot of ways. We had about eight to nine sermons finished and ready to go when we launched and, you know, this week we're going to be putting out our 18th episode. So we've, and that's not a lot of episodes, but we doubled just based on audiences bringing us sermons. And uh, we're already working on our second season that's going to have even more that's being worked on in the background. So it's really fantastic. We went a lot further than we thought we were going to go simply because people kept coming up and going, you know, I want to get involved with this. I think what you're doing is good. And when you talk about having the speakers come in, uh, some, some radio hosts, people like that, are there any names my audience might know? Oh, I don't know if there are any like super big names there. I mean, they're mostly radio like DJs. Um, And when I say come in, they don't come into our studio. They record them at home and send them to us. Uh, I don't know that there's a, I know Vermont Pierre, who is a writer at the Gospel Coalition, is working on an episode for us. If that's someone of interest to them, Um, that's probably the most like famous name, quote unquote. These aren't you know, uh, Joel Bordes and I, we, we love Jesus a lot. We don't have like a big network. We're not the, you know, we aren't um, professors. This is a passion of ours, but we do it on the side. We don't get paid anything to do it. We don't even have, uh, we, at some point we'd love to, but we don't have a merchandise shop. We don't have donations coming in. Like this is just something we do out of passionate love um, that we want to see happen. So this is not something that's, uh, 
being driven by an organization. We don't have a lot of big name pool. We invite tons of people, but you know, who actually comes on, it's uh, hard to say if you, you know, but we, we offer it to anybody who's interested. We might want to consider sometime even doing things like a Patreon for the show or something yeah. like that. We're working on it. We uh, we have a break coming up soon, and during that break, we're going to really um, kind of renegotiate, re- retweak some things, make the show even better. We're hoping to move towards videos and live events. We have a lot of stuff planned, but to be honest, when we came out with the first season, we just wanted to see if other people would be excited and interested and passionate about the same thing that we are. We're like, is this something weird? Or is like, is there going to be other people who hear about these old sermons and go, wow, that's no, there's a lot of good stuff in that. I want to hear them too. So we put it out there just to see if we would get listeners and the show uh, has been growing modestly. We've been getting sermons back and we go, okay, there seems to be, this is a real thing. Now we need to kind of go back and look at our own selves and go, how can we do this better? Because again, at the beginning, we just had nine episodes and we're going to put them out there and see, is anybody even going to listen to this? You know, or is anybody going to want to interview and talk with us about this? Because we didn't know if we were kind of crazy or not. Because we found it kind of weird that no one else was doing this. It seems like an obvious thing to do, and yet no one was. Well, if you are a ministry, yes, you are kind of crazy somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it... it so you, it sounds like you're telling me that people are responding positively. They really do like what's going on. Yeah, again, and you know, and maybe it's just you have to listen to them to start to kind of catch the drift too because we'll sit here and explain like, hey, you want to listen to old sermons? And people go, you just see the light in their eyes die a little bit like, no, nah, I'm not that interested in that. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, we don't have a huge group of friends, but we have a lot of friends and we, we like our friends and uh, we a lot, a lot of us met at Bible college. So you'd think these would be people interested in it, but I can probably count on one hand how many of my personal friends actually are, like are listening to this show. Yeah, if you get outside that group and you just put it out there for people, people are responding. There is, uh, we're really happy and excited with the feedback we receive. Again, it's not like a, you know, this is not massive. There's not hundreds and thousands of Revive Thoughts fans out there. But we're the people who are coming in. They are, they are really, they don't leave once they come in. They, they love it. They want to learn more about it, and they send us their their messages, their emails, their their, their Facebook posts, their iTunes reviews and stuff. And they're just like, you guys keep this up. We need more. I, can I help preach a sermon? I got this just on a. Just yesterday, a, a listener was just like, hey, I love what you're doing. You're edifying me. This is awesome. How can I get in here and help you guys with the sermon? It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. What do you foresee in the future with what you're doing? Oh, man. If 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 I could just paint you like a picture, like this would be my dream. And I, you know, I think it'll take some time. But uh, we would love to be able to do multiple sermons a week. I know you're thinking, you're thinking, what? Like even more? Yeah, even more sermons. Because guess what? Like, you know, most people who listen to sermon podcasts, again, which are one of the most popular branches of podcasts you can find, uh, you, you know, you're listening to the newest sermon preached last Sunday. But we have 1,800 years easily of history here between 100 AD and 1900 AD when audio starts to take over. All these sermons are unpreached. We would love to get as many of those out there. And if we could do more than one a day, that, I mean, a week, that would be great. Uh, we would also love to really move into that zone between the the patristic to the faith, like St. Augustine, these these guys, and uh, the reformers. There's a giant chunk from like 500 to 1500 AD that is very difficult to do their sermons. They're you know they're written in other languages. They're not a lot of them are not translated. Oh, speaking of not translated, uh, John Wycliffe and um, John Huss. 
These are mm-hmm. extremely important people to history and theology. Their sermons, as far as I can tell, are inaccessible, inaccessible to common mm-hmm. man. Perhaps they're translated somewhere out there for like an academic to get access to. I have Googled and spent mm-hmm. time talking with people. I cannot find them. So that's another goal is getting some of these really important people's sermons out there that we should have them. They're in Croatian. So let's, let's get them into uh, English. Uh, we would love to do, be working on that. Live streaming, putting this into video, getting this access out there, and doing live events is something we would really love to do in the future where you can be in the audience and hearing it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, where do people go when they want to find Revive Thoughts? Revivethoughts.com, or if you have uh, you know, iTunes or podcasts, I think Google Podcasts, whatever your podcasting application of choice is, just put in there Revive Thoughts and you will find us immediately. Mm-hmm. And do you have any hopes for a preacher today that would be listening to Revive Thoughts? Yes, if you are, if you're, you say, I said that again, if we, do I have any hopes for any preachers listening? Yes. Yeah, if you would like to be a preacher and do an episode, please contact us at revivethoughts at gmail.com. We would absolutely be thrilled to have you and talk with you. Also, um, Share it with your congregations. This is, I'm just, I, you know, this is a great chance for you to edify and lift up your your um, your, your church members with more sermons. I, I'm sure you're a fantastic, 100% awesome preacher, but this is just another place where they can go and hear great sermons and mm. just be doubly uplifted. And you don't have to worry about them running off to their church because those guys are dead, so you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, I also like how you said you are trying to fill the gap between, say, 500 and 1500. Yeah, I, I think there's a great mistake we can sometimes make in Protestant traditions where we say, okay, let's go to the New Testament, life of Jesus, that was good, that was great, okay, all the apostles are dead. Now let's move forward 1,500 years. Here's a Reformation, and that's Christian exactly. history. Yeah, and, no, and we've even been criticized. When we put Johann Tauler out there, he's uh, the monk from the 1300s, we put his sermon out there, we were criticized. Uh, people sent us messages like, hey, you know, that's not a, exactly a Protestant message. You shouldn't be getting in line with that guy. And I was like... A, did you listen to the sermon? Did, was there anything in that sermon that you think wasn't edifying, that was not biblically true? Yeah. Because if you listen to it, it sounds it sounds perfectly acceptable uh, pretty much in every way. Uh, B, uh, yeah, ama- amazing that a guy who lived 200 years before Martin Luther didn't have Martin Luther's uh, Protestant tradition in them. Of course not. Like, I mean, you got to give these guys grace. But do you mm-hmm. really believe that the church died somewhere after St. Augustine and didn't exist? Of course we don't believe that. So yeah. we have to accept that <laughs> even though these guys may not have perfect theology, they do understand some things about God, and we need to be able to embrace the parts they got right, even if they did get some of it wrong. And we get stuff wrong today, too. There was a comic strip out of Peanuts. Uh, we enjoyed it. Yet, Sally writing a paper on Charlotte Brown comes up to see what she's writing, and she's writing a paper on church history. And she says, when studying church history, it's important to go back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in 1950. <laughs> Does, I mean, that's so true, though. I, earlier in this um, interview we were doing, I discussed and pointed out the idea that, like, hey, look, a... Uh, a lot of atheists forget their history, right? But it, yeah. we do the same thing. We are just as guilty of them of pretending that, you know, these sermons from the past don't matter because they're old. Or, the, you know, if it comes happens before the 1500s, it's not really credible. Like, no, guys. Like, we have to accept that th- that God is, is a real God. He uses real people. And some of these people are going to be flawed. And some of this stuff is going to be murky. But we mm-hmm. still have to accept that his church was alive the whole time. <laughs> Actually, all of them are going to be flawed. Yeah. God uses flawed people because those are the only kinds he can find. 
Exactly. So it, it is it is something that I think is that we need to work on in our own in our own life, realizing like, yeah, you know what? We claim that the atheists forget history, that you know, people today, the, the liberals don't they wanna, you know, drag us away from our founding, but I'm like, but do you how well do you know your church history and how much do you know about these? And and me, I Man, I started this project so arrogantly. Like when it, it was a couple, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, me and Joel, we thought we knew so much about church history and these theologians. And then when we started studying them, we were like, oh my goodness, we, we went to Bible college. We learned a lot, but man, we didn't learn like a drop in the bucket. Like we had no yep. idea how much we were missing. <laughs> yep. Well, Troy, there's not enough time to really go any further with things. So we, we do have to start wrapping things up. I know sure. you just gave it a while ago, but that's, you again, do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Absolutely. You can listen to us at Revive Thoughts. It's a podcast you can find out on any kind of podcast. Uh, we, uh, iTunes, whatever you're on Google, uh, again, podcast, have a pocket cast, whatever you're using, we're going to be there. Uh, mm. Spotify. Also, revivethoughts.com, easier way to find all the sermons. We also put the transcripts, so every sermon is the, you can read them. If, nice. you, if you don't want to listen to them, it's there. You can le- read all the information from the episode. Again, if you're busy or just wanna, you don't want to listen, it's right there for you. Revivethoughts.com has that. Again, if you'd like to be a speaker, revivethoughts.gmail.com, message us. We will have you on. We pretty much have anybody on that we can because we just, there are so many voices in history and so many sermons. We we try to just have as many people on as we can. And, uh, you know, we talked about it too. If you And this is a weird, but I'm going to throw it out there because you have a very intellectual audience. If you are an expert or you know somebody, uh, some person in history or some sermons that we don't have access to or you might know about, feel free to contact us. We'd be happy to have you on. We've had that occasionally. We have a, a pretty solid expert on John Knox coming on pretty soon who's going to give us the lowdown. And we, we would never have been able to do that if someone hadn't come from another interview and contacted us. So please, we are, we are always looking for that extra help where we can get it. And do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave with a deeper waters audience? Deeper Waters, you guys are all about going deeper. You guys are about defending the faith and about just understanding that stuff. I think that's so fantastic. I'm really privileged that we got to be here. We're doing the same thing. It's just we're just kind of going more in the direction of history and who these preachers were in their lives and what they preached. We're... I think our audiences will, you know, I think you guys would really enjoy it. I really hope you do. And, you know, and, and this is going to sound, but just pray for us too. If you could yeah. uh, lift us up in prayer, help us to do this in the right way. Sometimes I have to stop and remind myself that this is the words of very important Christians that live through history. And I don't want to do that in a way that doesn't uh, bring God glory. Now, Tori, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hope we will see you back here again sometime. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it, Nick. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week, we're going to have Lee Strobel on talking about his book, the case for miracles. For now, I'm Nick Peters, I affirm the virgin birth, and I am signing off.